Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about stories containing people's first impressions of Jesus. Before it plays, I want to make you aware of something that is happening in our church right now. Like for many churches, COVID and everything connected to it was really hard. As I've mentioned before, due to not being allowed to use the school we normally meet in, we had to do church from eight locations in 13 months. On top of that, about a third of our congregation moved out of the state. Despite the challenges though, God has continued to move in our church. We are growing, people are getting baptized, and we're even finding new ways to serve our community. In fact, we're working this year with another organization to provide children who have been victims of human trafficking a good Christmas. Here's the reality. Despite the good taking place in our congregation, the challenges of the last year have made money really tight. Right now, we are doing a fundraiser to make up for the deficit that we plan for in our budget. Thankfully, someone has graciously offered to match the first $5,000 donated. That means for every dollar donated, $2 will come to our church. So here's my big ask. If you are in a position to make a donation, it would be incredibly helpful to our church and the future of our ministry. I know that not everyone can do this, and I really don't want you to feel guilty if you can't. But if you can make a donation, a donation of any size, we would appreciate it so much. If this is true for you, you can go to creekside.me donate. Make sure to select the matching fundraiser when you choose where to give. Every single dollar will help us to continue to move forward as a church that helps people experience and express God's glory. One more time, the website is creekside.me donate. Again, thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So there's this thing that I think people can be guilty of when it comes to Christianity, and that's, uh, that's kind of putting people, you know, either in Christianity or, or you're like out, you know, and, and we have a tendency, even as Christians, to look at people, and, and I think uh, we, we just kind of label them hopeless almost, and, and I think there's people who aren't Christians who, you know, maybe one time they heard something about Jesus and they've just said, ah, that's not the thing for me and have never, never explored it again. And as we continue to move through the book of John and we read about these people's first impressions of Jesus, I think this story is, is so important because there's this story of this man who has this incredible conversation with Jesus. And the conversation appears for him anyway, to be pretty fruitless. Uh, but later on, we see that, that he has like this, this movement towards embracing Jesus. And we'll, we'll come back to that. But I think it's a really important story for, for those of us who are Christians because uh, it teaches a ton of important theology. But on top of that, it reminds us that, that sometimes when, when we tell people about Jesus, when we share Jesus with somebody, they may just not get it. But that doesn't mean they're a lost cause. And I think for other people who aren't Christians, that maybe this is like a story that, that says, keep looking. Like, don't get, if you just didn't understand something or you, you weren't sure about something, like, just keep looking. And, and I think one of, the, one of the points, although there's just like a lot in this story that is deep and rich and important that we'll talk about, I think one of, the, one of the key things we need to take from it is simply that new life is available to everyone, even people that don't get it at first, 
right? Because we, we can think that like there's some people who just get Christianity. They, it's like for them. And then there's these other people who, well, they didn't get it. And it's, it's, just, it's just a lost cause. And this story suggests, I think, something very different from that. And here's how John 3 begins. Here's verses 1 and 2 of John 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So here's this guy named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. That's the strictest sect of Judaism. He was a person who was a religious leader. Uh, They were renowned for their rigid uh, adherence to the Jewish law. They made laws in order to make sure that they were following the laws of God. He was also part of the Jewish ruling council or the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of two groups. One you could kind of look at as conservative and one liberal, uh, not in our American sense, but that's kind of how it would break down. And he was part of that conservative group. They were representatives of Uh, kind of government for the Romans, the lower courts, if you will. They were the ones who decided matters of of Jewish custom and law, uh, like in a ruling way, given this kind of power from the Romans who ultimately ruled over the Jewish people. And so this is a well-known and respected religious leader. And in fact, the the thing that Jesus says to him in kind of the end of this story that I won't touch on again, but but you can believe me or read it, it, it makes it seem as though Nicodemus is is actually like a specifically well-known teacher of Judaism. Like he's part of these groups that give him some power and some prestige, but it seems like as an individual, he, he is actually a, a known teacher of, of all things Judaism. And so that's who this guy is. And he, he comes to Jesus and, and he seems curious about Jesus. And what's interesting is that you're going to see that our story today doesn't seem to have a happy ending for this man named Nicodemus. It doesn't end, I hate to give away the ending, but it doesn't end with Nicodemus crying and embracing Jesus as the Lord and Savior at all, of all. You know, the last thing we read of him is just kind of utter confusion. But later in the Gospel of John, passages that we'll look at again, we see that there seems to be this movement in his life from curious to supportive of Jesus to maybe even follower of Jesus. And I'll tell you, I believe that we'll meet Nicodemus in heaven because of, of these things that we read later. In John 7, 50 through 52, there's these Pharisees that are trying to arrest Jesus. He is one of them, but, but it says this, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, that's our story, and who was one of their own, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he was, has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And so here's this moment where, you know, his friends, his colleagues, they're trying to arrest Jesus and Nicodemus, you know, he kind of pumps the brakes on that for a second. It seems like he's at least supportive of Jesus and what Jesus is doing, or at least less adverse to it than than the other people that he is surrounded by. And then in John 19, 38 through 40, this is after Jesus has been killed, he's been crucified. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier visited Jesus at night. Again, that's our story. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about, a, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen, and then they put him in the tomb. 
This is why I believe that we'll meet Jesus. You know, right after Jesus is killed, Nicodemus is one of the ones who, who buries Jesus. And it's this, to me, it's this incredible, you know, this is all we really know about Nicodemus. Like, this is, this is his life story as far as the Bible is concerned. And it's this incredible movement from curious to supportive to follower. And, and I think that, that that says something important to us about how people sometimes come to embrace Jesus. Sometimes it starts with curiosity, and, and maybe you have a friend, if you're a Christian, and they've asked you about Jesus, and you've done your best to answer, and, and you've left them confused, or you know they've just chosen to say, nah, that's not for me. And sometimes we think that's the end of the story. But for Nicodemus, this moment of confusion that we'll read about in a minute, and is not the end of the story. He progresses in his willingness to embrace Jesus and out of that, I totally believe that upon the resurrection, if he was willing to go bury Jesus, you know, uh, and, and he was doing it in secret, then for sure, once Jesus came back from the dead and he had that proof that Jesus was truly the savior of the world, uh, for sure he embraced him and became a Christian. We need to be people who understand that sometimes the process of of becoming Christians is not as fast as those of us are on the other side who have already done it would like it to be. And, And I think there's encouragement here for us who have tried to witness to people, who have told people about Jesus and just felt like it didn't go anywhere. There's encouragement here to say, you know what? This is not a lost cause. And for people who have rejected Jesus, I would just say to you, this might not be the end of the story with Jesus. And just because you didn't like the first thing you heard or just because you didn't used to like Jesus doesn't mean that you have to be a person that that makes part of your identity being a non-Christian, somebody who has rejected the stories of the Bible. There is room in the Gospels for people to change, to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is and to ultimately embrace him. I mean, notice here that, that Nicodemus, he comes at night, and it's probably because Jesus is, you know, already taking people off. We saw him cleaning out the temple, right? Like we talked about that story. And so Nicodemus, he's curious about Jesus, but he's not willing to show that publicly. He's respectful of Jesus. He calls him rabbi. And that's the first title that we saw Jesus' new followers call him, if you've been around. But coming from a respected, well-known teacher of Judaism, that's a bigger compliment, right? Like, I mean, this is a guy who's well-known as a rabbi now calling Jesus rabbi. It's an interesting idea. There's respect. And then he's like, hey, we, notice there's we, and it almost feels, and this is not like unique to me. I read this in a commentary, but it's almost as if he uses we because he's nervous to say I. It almost has that feel here as we read through the story. Have you ever done that? I think like that's a common thing for people to do. Like you, you, you want to go talk to, to somebody about how they're misbehaving in your workplace or whatever, how they're acting incorrectly. You haven't talked to anybody else about it, but it just feels a little easy to be like, hey, you know, we think that maybe you need to, you know, do a better job because it's not like I, right? And it feel, that's what it feels like here. Nicodemus is like, hey, you know, we think that you are from God because of the incredible things that you are doing. And there's no question in it. I find that really interesting. He just makes this statement, but Jesus seems to get right to his heart. And here's how Jesus replies. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
There is some debate about kingdom of God. Some people connect it strictly to the church. But I would just say the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God here on earth. And, and that exists. The kingdom of God exists you know, for all people. All of us uh, live underneath within the kingdom of God in some ways. But some people choose to become part of that kingdom. We call ourselves Christians. God rules and reigns, but some people choose to give their lives to him, accepting his rule and reign. And, and Jesus here says that the way to get into that kingdom of God, something that the Jewish people look forward to in some way, a time when, when a, a man would sit on David's throne, somebody appointed by God, given by God, would sit on David's throne and would make things right for the Jewish people. They longed for that day. And Jesus here, upon this respectful statement, cuts right to it and says to Nicodemus, hey, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born again. Now, if you uh, have grown up in the church and you're my age or older, this is a familiar phrase to you, born again. Uh, it's, it's something that traditionally has been really just a common you know, a common phrase in Christian circles. We've talked about being born again Christians. Uh, it's really fallen out of favor, it seems like, in, in Christian circles in maybe the last decade or so. And, and that interested me. I, I, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of words that I, I have some knowledge about. Like, why did we stop saying that? Evangelical seems to be kind of undergoing that, you know, transition in the mainstream Christian world today because, because it's, it's taken on a lot of baggage that it doesn't deserve, right? And so uh, people are stopping kind of using the term evangelical Christian. But I was like, where did born again go? You know, like I, I might not have been old enough. I might not have been a pastor enough. Like it just seems to have disappeared from our language. And Christianity Today wrote a bit of an article about it. And uh, they, said, they said this, being called a born again Christian can mean many things to many people. For some, it means you are a Bible thumping fundamentalist or a political conservative. For others, it means you were converted at a Billy Graham crusade. Countless other stereotypes have created endless confusion. So that's what happened to born again, uh, I guess. It, it disappeared because of you know similar things to what I said about evangelical. But but I would offer that this, this language should make a comeback within the church. That's what I would argue because, because it goes all the way back to Jesus. Like this is an important idea coming from the mouth of Jesus. Nobody can see the kingdom unless you are born again. And apparently a lot of people mean a lot of different things. And so the question then for us would be like, well, what does Jesus mean when he says it, right? I mean, like what was Jesus talking about when he said when he said that you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God, to become part of, as we'll see in a minute, you know, the rule and reign of, of God, to be to be a Christian, to be his follower. What what does it mean to be born again? And that's pretty much what Nicodemus wants to know because this is what happens next. He says, How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So here's one of those, those, uh, those misunderstandings. I mentioned this last week in the book of John. John tells us of these moments in Jesus' life where, where 
there's these misunderstandings because people tend to see the surface level of what Jesus says and they say, well, that's impossible or that's not right. And they completely miss the deeper meaning, the spiritual meaning of what Jesus is intending. And for John, I said this last week, but it bears repeating. He's reading, he's writing all of this from a a post-resurrection perspective. And so, you know, whether he knew this at the time, right? Like, like this is what it meant. He sees the deeper meaning. So for Nicodemus, he's like, I can't become one of these again, right? Like, I well, like that, I mean, can you imagine born again if you heard it for the first time, the confusion that that, like, if you've grown up in the church, you're like, well, idiot, of course we know what born again means, but like, I mean, walk up to somebody on the street right now, right? Just go out here in our state of Oregon and be like, hey, to see the kingdom, you have to be born again. Like, what are you, like, I got to become a baby again? And Nicodemus says it like, I can't get back in the womb, you know? Like, what are you, what are you saying to me? Now, there's part of this and this misunderstanding that, that some people may say like Nicodemus, you know, he may have, you know, he's not an idiot. He's one of these great religious teachers of the time. So he's not actually thinking Jesus is saying, I got to become a baby. He sees maybe a little bit of the deeper meaning. He sees that there's something about starting over here. But he's thinking of himself as this old, wise teacher that has, you know, grown up in this religious world. He's done everything he can to please God to the best of his ability. How can I, even if it's metaphorical, Jesus, how can I, you know, spiritually speaking, become a baby again? How is that even possible? Like, what are you talking about? And Jesus' answer, <laughs> not so clear. Like, I don't think I remember this, like... Uh, this, I mean, born again, I grew up with that language. I'm an 80s Christian kid. Uh, been to a Billy Graham crusade. Like, you know, this is familiar language to me. But Jesus' response was like not one that, that, I've don't, that I think I've like ever really paid attention to, to be honest with you. He's like, hey, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So that's, you know, same idea. You can't see it. You can't enter it unless you're born of water and spirit. Water and spirit. Now, this, this is, this is kind of confusing, right? And a lot of people say that this is, this is baptism and conversion, like the moment you believe in Jesus, to use a very uh, Johannine word, and then when you get baptized. But, you know, that's not something I believe, like that I have to, that I have to be baptized to enter into the kingdom of God. And it doesn't, to me, line up with the rest of Scripture. And uh, he doesn't say if you're baptized. So, so it, it begs the question, what, what, do these, what do these things mean? I mean, what does it mean to be born of, of water and the Spirit? And here's what's interesting. It, it seems to be connected to Old Testament ideas that, that we're not so familiar with, but Nicodemus would have been familiar with. Uh, water in the Old Testament is, is usually connected to cleansing. It's connected to cleansing and renewal. Uh, and especially that's true when it's, when it is used in connection to the spirit. When the two are together, this is about renewal or cleansing in a spiritual way. And the spirit in the old Testament is like God's principal agent for life. Like, like at creation, you know, like God's spirit is what creates in the Old Testament. And, and so the picture that we get here is that, that in order to enter into the kingdom of God, 
You, you must be made new and clean. You must be made new and clean. Now, it's pretty clear that Jesus is talking about something spiritual here in my mind, but Jesus makes that explicit. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but it's the spirit who can give birth to our spirits. He's saying, hey, hey, Nicodemus, I'm not talking about this, right? Like flesh gives birth to flesh, but we are talking about something spiritual here. And the spiritual things can only happen by the spirit, by the power of God. And he uses this example to show us that he's not talking about physical things. He says, he says it's, it's like the wind. He says, you can't see it. You can't understand it. We have a much better understanding today, I'm sure, of wind than they did at the time. But you can't see it, can't understand it, but you can sure tell when it's there, right? Like you can sure see the difference that wind makes. And he says, this is, this is what it's like for people who enter into the kingdom of God. You can't really understand it. You can't really see it. But you can sure tell that something has changed within them. So Jesus is looking at him and says, hey, you want to know how to be born again? This is not something about starting a physical new life. This is, this is something about being cleansed and renewed in such a way that the difference is real but not visible. It's real but not visible. 1 Peter 1.23 says, two Christians, for you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Uh, in the book of Romans, which we studied through last year, I mean, we, we constantly read about life in Adam, which is everybody. Everybody has life in Adam. It's, it, it's you know, characterized by sin and death and uh, imprisonment to both sin and the law that's been given to, to show us what sin is. And you have that life in Adam. If you guys were around last year, I had a big red piece of paper and a big green piece of paper to call back to a sermon that you probably don't remember, but I hope you do. Uh, you know, life in Adam, and then there's life in Christ, which is characterized by the opposite. It's characterized by life and not death. It's characterized by forgiveness. It's characterized by being set free from sin. It's characterized by being set free from the law. It's characterized by grace and not condemnation. And so we have this, for Paul writing, he, he describes it like the life that we have, but Jesus here looks at the very beginning of it and says, all of that starts by being renewed, by being forgiven, by being cleansed. And man alive, this next part is so important because Nicodemus, while he didn't understand it first, he, this is like the last thing he's gonna say. He asked this question that I think is the most important question. If I want life in the kingdom of God, if I, I mean, there's so many ways we could describe what it means to be in the kingdom of God, right? And if you're a Christian, you know a lot of them, but like to be part of God's family, to be forgiven of sin, to look forward to heaven, like to have new peace and joy, to, to experience the love of God, to be in relationship with God. Like there's all these things, right? And, and Nicodemus asked this question, okay, if, what's, if we're talking spiritual things here, and the answer is I have to be cleansed and renewed. Like I have to start over. How can that be? That's the question in John 3, 9. How can this be? And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify what we have, to what we have seen. But still you people did not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? 
No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here it is again, Nicodemus. I'm like, how can, how, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm an old man. Like, how, how can I be renewed? How can I be cleansed? And, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, what derived his teaching is, you know, there, there's things in the Old Testament that, that show this reality. I mean, Jesus is like, you should understand this. Like, you're a religious teacher. And he's saying, like, there's things that point to this. Exodus 36, 25, and 20, 26. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 37, there's this amazing imagery, and it seems to be behind kind of what Jesus is saying here. And if you don't know Ezekiel 37, it's this wonderful imagery of these dry bones filling up this valley, and then God's spirit comes upon them, and they come back to life here, right? This is like a story. If you've heard it once, if you've read Ezekiel 37 once, then you then you're like, remember it, right? And here, Nicodemus, one of the, the great teachers of his day, as far as Judaism goes, he's like, how can this be? And he should have been able to see in Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, it comes from God putting a new heart in us and bringing us back to life by the power of his spirit. Surely Isaiah 53 points to this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Nicodemus, like man, you're the teacher. Like you, you should know how this is done. It's done through me. It's done through me. Jesus is like, you, we can only testify to what we have seen. <laughs> you don't even understand the earthly things, but I've seen heaven, and, and how are you going to understand any of this? Jesus is the uncreated creator, remember, and in this conversation, he's like, come on, like, if you can't accept the things that you see right in front of you that I'm doing, then how are you going to accept the harder things? But then Jesus gives the answer, Right? He goes from like this, I would call it a gentle rebuke. Come on, man. Like you should know this. It's right there in front of you. And then, and then he gives the answer. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It's this story in Numbers 21, four through nine that this is, this is connected to. And God sends this, this plague of snakes, this uh, punishment of snakes amongst his people, and people are you know dying, and uh, and God says, "Here's the deal: you can live, you can survive this by Moses lift, lifting up this bronze snake, and everybody who's bit, they can come and look at it, and if they look at it, then they can be healed." And so Jesus takes this, I think. If I can be honest with you, like everything up to this point in this conversation, I'm totally with Nicodemus. Like, all right, I'm kind of feeling this, Jesus, but this is like, what are you really talking about here? Like, can we just speak in plain English? Can you just tell me what you mean? But then here, I think Jesus uses just the 
It's such a simple story. People who were bit by snakes could look upon this bronze snake that was lifted up and they could live. And he says, just like that, the son of man, his title that he uses most frequently for himself, just like that, I must be lifted up so that people can be saved, so that people can be born again. Uh, Jesus being lifted up, it always is a term that points to the cross in the book of John. And so what Jesus is saying here, and, and I think Nicodemus, man, I love to think that he's there at that burial, you know, those few years later or whatever it might be. And, and as Jesus is hanging on that cross and then is, you know, dies, like I love to think that he's thinking, oh, I, I get it now. He was lifted up upon that cross in order that we who look upon him in belief might be saved. We might be born again. We might be born again. Jesus says that the Son of Man might be lifted up so that people might have eternal life. Is the first instance of, of this phrase, uh, specifically, I alluded to it a couple weeks ago, but it's the first instance of this phrase, and it's such a big deal in the book of John. And the next verse that I'll read is one that you're going to know pretty well, John 3.16, but this is not just a phrase for heaven. And, and that's what I, I think we sometimes miss when we talk about eternal life. Like this is not a phrase about what we get someday. This is a phrase about what starts as soon as we look upon the Son of Man for the cleansing and renewal of our lives. As soon as we are born again, we enter into a new life that is defined, that is characterized as eternal life in the book of John. It is a life that is characterized by forgiveness, a new morality, a new purpose. It's a life that is abundant, to use a word Jesus will use later. It's one filled with peace, hope, and joy. And ultimately, it is one that will last forever in a place of perfection. Eternal life in the book of John is something that starts the moment we are born again and then lasts and improves into eternity. And Jesus says that that this can happen. This happens through him, by looking upon him. John in verse 16, this is probably not the words of Jesus. John explains it even more clearly in the most famous verse in all the Bible. John 3, 16. uh, One I've had memorized for a long time in the King James Version, but I have to read it to you in the NIV. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's like John, as he writes this gospel, from that post-resurrection perspective, I said that this is a a clear illustration story. Just as that bronze snake had to be lifted up so that people could live, Jesus has to be lifted up too. And here comes John writing it down for all of us who would read it later. And he says, this is, what, this is exactly what Jesus means. God loved the world so much that Jesus came to die so that if we believe, if we look upon him and believe, then we will never perish, but we'll have eternal life. That's, that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. I think it's so important. I never want to get away from this. It's so important to see here that that the offer 
of new life, the offer of being born again is rooted, it's founded in the love that God has for us. I would hate for us, you know, to skip over that part. And I think we do sometimes. We skip to just what we get out of it so frequently, but not what it comes from. We skip to, hey, I get to live forever in eternity. We do this from the time we're kids. Man, I've done a, I've done a great job of, of uh, making my kids excited about heaven. Man, we, t- we talk about heaven so frequently and what we're going to do there. And uh, I'm a big pusher, if you haven't been around a long time, of, of like, hey, we'll go to heaven for a while and then we're going to live on a new earth and it's going to be amazing. It'll be like this one without any pain or sorrow or tears or mourning or all the things we hate. No more food allergies. Like, I mean, all, like, it's going to be so good, right? But... Perhaps the most amazing part is that all of that is possible because of the creator of the universe actually loving me enough to send his son down here to die for my sins. Like it's easy to think about what we get out of it, but we have got to pause frequently in our lives and remember that we get all of that because of the incredible, gracious, huh, amazing love of God. And it's not love that comes because of who we are, what we have done. It's love that comes because of who he is and how he has chosen to interact with us. It's amazing to me that John, in the midst of this really deep and theological conversation, he, he, he kind of gets after it right here in his own commentary. And he just, he takes all of that kind of difficult, like nuanced, Old Testament stuff that can be a little bit of a struggle for us non-Jewish, you know, teachers who aren't rabbis. Uh, and he says, hey, let me, let me explain it to you. God loves you. God loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. And if you just believe, which means give him your life, which means place your faith in him, which means trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, which means rely on him completely, which means declare him as your savior and your Lord, to make him the king of kings and to recognize that his kingdom is the kingdom, right? Like to give him the rule and reign of your life while also trusting him completely and fully for the forgiveness of sins, for eternity, but also in your daily life and the things that you struggle with. That's what it means to believe in the book of John is to just throw your life upon Jesus and say, I have nothing, I need you. And it's all rooted in love. And then, and then what follows is somewhat of a description of eternal life. And I'm just going to read it. I'm not even going to say much about it. And then I'll finish. John 3, 17 through 21. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Christianity Today, in that same article about born again, says this, we think that new birth is something we must do, but that misses the miracle of it all. It also misses the meaning of the metaphor. Birth is something that happens to us, not something we can accomplish. How much more so with the matters of the heart? What I I would say to each and every one of us is, 
First of all, believe in Jesus for the salvation of sin. Become, to use, I guess, what is an outdated phrase, a born-again Christian. I don't know all the baggage behind that word, but, but boy, oh boy, it's important to become born again. It's the only way to enter into the kingdom of God and to look forward to eternity with him. Become a born-again Christian. And I would say as I started, you know, to, to those here with me who are watching online that maybe have rejected Jesus in the past. Maybe you haven't understood things. Maybe you don't even understand what I'm saying today. You're like, what did he just, that was complicated. Like, maybe that's you. And I would say, don't stop looking at the person of Jesus. Keep coming back to him because the only way into eternal life is through him. It's the only way. He was lifted up like the snake in the desert in order that you might be saved from your sins. And I would hope that, man, even if you're so just, you're just curious, you're just curious, but you're confused, curious and confused, keep coming back to Christ. Because I believe, I believe that there is, there is a future for you, a future for you in eternity. If you'll keep coming back, he will reveal himself to you. You will see things in his word that will compel you to give your life to him eventually. For those of us who are Christians, never forget the love of God. Never forget the love of God. Like, make it, just let it, just be saturated by it. Let it fill up your heart. We can, we can, I mean, we can read all this and talk about all the confusing parts. What exactly does spirit and water mean? Like, we can try to dissect this, and we can fall into the exact same trap that Nicodemus had been in his whole life, trying to parse out all the details and missing the actual meaning that God loved us and gave his life for us. Don't be a great theologian that forgets about the love of Jesus. And for those of us who have others out there that we desperately long for them to become Christians, we want them to accept Jesus as their savior. Don't give up on people. Never give up on people because Nicodemus, his story is not over here. I mean, remember that last question? How can this be? That's how I hear him saying it. How in the what are you? Like, that's how I hear it. He's one of the people that buried Jesus and I believe I believe he is somebody that we will meet in heaven someday when we get there. Never give up on a person. Even if you, man, even if you confused them, then you're just like Jesus in that regard. If they said, tell me about Jesus, and you messed it, Jesus didn't mess it up. But like, even if you mess it all up, and they're like, how's that possible, idiot? Like, then you're right, I mean, right there. Nicodemus, like, he still had a shot. Do not give up on people. And the reason we don't give up on people is exactly what we read here. God loves the world. He loves everybody. And he sent his son to die for them. And so we can't give up on people. God hasn't. Let me pray that we'll do those things. Lord Jesus, I mean, this verse, John 3, 16, is so near and dear to our hearts who are Christians, Lord. And, and, and all of that, you know, as difficult as some of it is for a modern American, Lord, it's, there's such importance there. I mean, Sometimes, God, we, we act as if we just got a little bit out of um, becoming a Christian, like, like it was one small step forward in our journey, but, but what you've called us into is a brand new life. And Lord, as I say that, I don't want people to hear that like there's no more problems or no more struggles or anything like that, but it is a new life, God. You've invited us to be born again. 
And so I pray that we, who are Christians, will remember that, as Paul says, we have a new life that's in you, Lord. We have moved into a new realm of existence, that we are no longer citizens of earth, but citizens of heaven. We are citizens of your kingdom, Lord. I pray, God, for those of us who are Christians, that we, God, would remember, think about, be inspired by, worship you because of your incredible love for us, love that would compel you to send your one and only son, your only begotten son, to die for our sins. And finally, Lord, I pray for those who aren't Christians. God, people come to my mind right now, my own life. So many people, God, that have not believed in you. They might believe certain things about you. They might know the scriptures, but they have not believed in you. They have not placed their faith in you. They have not given you their lives. They have not trusted you, God, for the forgiveness of sins. They have not been born again. And I pray, God, that those who have heard this sermon today, they would choose, God, to give you their life. They would choose to believe in you. They would accept you, God, as their savior. I pray that, Lord. I pray that we as Christians would never give up on our loved ones who have rejected you, who have been confused by you, who have not understood you, don't get why we have believed in you. Let us never give up on them. Let us come back to them and, 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 and let us pray for them and let us talk to them more and let us look for opportunities. Let our conversations be always full of salt and grace, Jesus, so that maybe we might be used by you to lead them into a relationship, God, with you that will that will give them the eternal life that you have died for. God, I pray these things in your name. Jesus, I pray these things in your name. Amen.